there was something interesting about looking at public space as opposed to working from the studio. It was something that I was doing already, but I didn't have a language for it. I thought I was being rebellious and creating something that had not existed before. And then, bam, you know, there was this whole thing called performance art and public space that had already been existing for a while. And I think that really allowed me the freedom to begin to think also beyond the constraints of only identities. Welcome to the latest podcast in our Arts Research Africa dialogue series. These dialogues are intended to stimulate practice, enable research, and inspire collective engagement around the question of artistic research in Africa. I'm Prof. Krista Doherty, the Head of Artistic Research in the Bits School of Arts. In this dialogue, I'll be speaking to Donna Kukama, a South African-born interdisciplinary artist who works primarily with performance as well as paint on canvas, sculptural objects, video, and site-specific installation. Donna is currently the Professor of Contemporary Art in the Global South at the Academy of Media Arts in Cologne, Germany. The underlying topic of this conversation is how Donna uses performance art and her other art practices as tools for artistic research, elaborating a challenging critique of the existing narratives of history and traditional modes of storytelling. Donna currently has a solo exhibition at the Witz Art Museum, which runs until the 5th of November. Donna was born in Mafeking in the then South African homeland of Baputatswana in 1981. After completing her fine arts degree at the Tswane University of Technology, she studied for a master's in public art in Switzerland. She was awarded the Standard Bank Young Artist Award for Performance Art in 2014 and has gone on to exhibit and present performances at a range of prestigious national and international galleries and museums, including the Museum of Modern Art in Antwerp, the NGBK in Berlin, the New Museum in New York, and the South African National Gallery in Cape Town. In this conversation, we explore Donna's personal trajectory as an artist and her experience of different kinds of arts education in South Africa and Europe. We also discuss her Standard Bank Young Artist Award for Performance Art, the impact this had on her career, and the significance of performance art in post-apartheid South Africa. We then concentrate on the interrogation of history in Donna's work and the collaborative research project the Center for Historical Reenactments, which she initiated during her time as a lecturer at BITS, together with Gabin Gobo and Kemangwa Lehulule. We also examine Donna's radical conception of written histories, in which her practice is not limited to the physical form of bound pages in books, but moves through rumor, memory, performance, drawing, sculptural objects, installations, and sound, all of which are featured in her WAM exhibition. Finally, we unpack the creative process behind her video performance work, The Swing, After After Fragonard, from 2009. The Swing is one of the four video pieces featured at her WAM exhibition. I had understood that the work was a complex, critical reconfiguration of two previous works, the original 18th century Rococo painting, The Swing, by Fragonard, and then Yinka Shonibari's decolonial installation of that work from 2001 called The Swing After Fragonard. But I had no idea of what went into the creation of Donna's work or the dramatic personal consequences for her of the performance on a swing high above My My Market in downtown Johannesburg. 
Donna, let's start with your personal trajectory as an artist from your beginnings in Mafeking and your arts education at Swane, University of Technology, and then, of course, your postgraduate work on the MAPS program in Switzerland. But what I'm interested in is how did you start? What was the link to art growing up in Mafeking? So I grew up in the 80s in Mafeking. And at the time, Mafeking was, of course, a homeland, not part of South Africa, which, I mean, it had its disadvantages, but one of the big advantages is that we had a cultural center called Mabana. So I think a lot of kids that grew up in Mafeking were exposed to art from a very young age. You had ballet classes, you had painting classes, you had karate, you had all these cultural activities that you could sort of be exposed to at a very young age. So I kind of grew up in that environment, even though I didn't think of myself as an artist specifically, you know, at five, six years old, there was a way in which this community was already thinking of art as part of the everyday and not as something that is elite and out there. I then moved from Mafiging, you know, my mom was quite a nomad. So I moved around quite a lot as a child, right up until my varsity studies. I went to 10 different schools. I also lived in different cities. And I think that for me began to really shape my kind of nomadic way, which comes in later in my performances, of course, but this idea to adapt contexts, to shift with time, to reshape oneself, to always be kind of working very specifically to contexts that are not familiar. It kind of became something that was embedded in me at a very young age. When I went to Sun University of Technology, I went there as a student in, what is it, I even forget. <laughs> That's how important it was. <laughs> engineering, <laughs> industrial engineering. Was that what your mother wanted you to do? It was what my family wanted because they believed I was smart and I was good at math and science and, you know, I had to be an engineer. And art was not seen as something where a person can make a life, you know, the image of an artist was someone who stands at the street corner and sells paintings and doesn't quite survive. I did take the industrial engineering course, but I dropped out because my heart was always in the art. And then I registered for art and uh, completed my BA at Tuan University of Technology. At master's level, I then went on an exchange to Switzerland where I decided to stay because there was something interesting about looking at public space as opposed to working from the studio. It was something that I was doing already while I was in Tuani, but I didn't have a language for it. I didn't have concepts around what I was doing. I thought I was being rebellious and creating something that had not existed before. And then bam, you know, there was this whole thing called performance art and public space that had already been existing for a while. And I think that really allowed me the freedom to begin to think also beyond the constraints of only identity. Because if you imagine in the early 90s in South Africa, you know, a lot of Black women 
who were entering the arts were, and rightfully so, speaking about identity. So I came in a bit later than that and I was sort of struggling. I didn't want to be pigeonholed into this conversation only and that my art had more to do and more to say. And, you know, and in this struggle and in this refusal, I often caught myself in hot water because then you know, I would be misunderstood as someone who's denying that they are Black, which was not the case at all. It's just that I felt enough had been done by those that came before us and I wanted to enter into different spaces and to discover other languages and things to talk about in contemporary art. So Switzerland, in that sense, offered relief where suddenly there was no one telling me what to make art about and I had to really figure it out on my own. In your movement between different educational institutions, South Africa, Europe, Switzerland, you've obviously seen different and experienced different models of arts education. Can you reflect on that? Because you then came back to South Africa. That's where I first met you. You were teaching at WITS in WITS Fine Arts Department. So what are the differences in the approaches towards art education in these institutions? There are definitely differences. And at the same time, they are difficult to pinpoint because I guess with each experience, one being a student versus being a lecturer, the experience is different. As a student in doing my master's, there was definitely a feeling sometimes of alienation or of not being fully into the culture, mainly because the structures of the education systems were quite different. You know, the master's course was, yes, alienating, but also beautiful in the sense that you had people coming from different backgrounds. So it was a very interdisciplinary program where you had musicians, you had someone who was an architect, you had someone who was a sculptor, myself as a performance artist, all in this group and really interacting at the same time. So the idea of, of fine art as something that sits above everything or separate from everything else, yeah, immediately fell off. My experience with this university was that, you know, although there is a willingness between individuals to cross-collaborate between different departments, there's still a very strict sort of separation between these departments. And the, the way in which the courses are structured is also you kind of climb up first year, second year, third year within this one thing. You cannot suddenly just hop into music and you know take a course there. So that's I, I think that was the main thing, which I've also taught in German institutions as well as in Geneva, where I'm a visiting guest lecturer at the moment. I think with each country, with each culture, there's a different approach in the German sense. There's a way in which the student knows who they want to follow. So they kind of already pick their mentor. And as a professor, then you have a group of students that range from first year to master's, all in the same class. Then the differentiations between these levels that you have to go through all aside, but it's more about how much time you are spending with 
which person. There's a different approach and that's in the sense that people know they have chosen to be with you. They're not forced to do a performance class when all they want to do is paint, you know? So there's that kind of difference. And there's also this value, of course, in what institutions in South Africa offer in that you are forced to experience everything before you can finally make a decision. I guess it differs person to person, but I can't, I don't want to say one is better than the other. (laughs) I think budget is also a big thing. I'm mindful that a lot of these European institutions are very well funded and they have workshops and studios and technicians and all of that. So it also makes a huge difference compared to an institution that is still sort of struggling with just basic materials. Mm. And in the European system, the students are actually subsidized in their education, aren't they? You know, which, of course, you know, certainly not the case in South Africa, particularly for like doing advanced work, postgraduate work, huge battle here. Yeah, in Germany, the studies are fully subsidized. So you have people that have been in university for 10 years, and they just continue studying because they're finding themselves, they're shifting between different courses. I think it sets a different type of pressure to someone who's actually paying and does not have the funds and just wants to get done and move on and earn a living. In 2014, you won the Standard Bank Young Artist Award, but in the category of performance art, which I think was the first time that that category was introduced into the Standard Bank Awards. And it seems very significant that that happened in 2014. What did that do for you as an artist, getting that very specific recognition for your performance art? Oh, the Standard Bank Young Artist Award was a really incredible moment for me because I had been practicing everywhere for quite a while. And I hadn't received any real recognition or any significant recognition within a South African context. It was the second time, actually, because the first one was Anthea Moyes the previous year. So receiving the award for performance was quite huge. It was challenging, I suppose, because, of course, the organizers are not familiar with this form, you know, there has been theater, there's been visual art, there's a certain way of working within all these other media. And then suddenly there's this thing that's in between. And I think it was a very interesting learning curve for everyone who was involved, but more so a really important moment in my career, a recognition as a South African artist in South Africa by South Africans was really important. I think until then, I had felt like I was just a whisper, (laughs) an echo of elsewhere, but not really existing within the major cultural things that were big. Of course, I had worked independently and I had done projects independently, but something as big as the Senate Bank Young Artist Award was an affirmation that was needed. (laughs) Getting that award as a performance artist in 2014. What was your understanding of the genealogy of performance art, both internationally and more specifically in South Africa? 
I mean, there are many scholars, one of them, notably my colleague, Nontobeko Ntombela, who argue that performance art in a South African context is very much a consequence and a reaction to the changing political and social atmosphere, the enabling atmosphere that followed the fall of apartheid and a democratic dispensation. I agree with that, but also my approach to performance art is looking more at how histories have been told, you know, even pre-apartheid and and the idea of oral histories as carriers of knowledge, the questions around which bodies are seen within historical context, what public memory looks and feels like. To have this in 2014, when the questions around roads must fall were not as huge in the country, and my proposal was a kind of roads must fall because I was interrogating the monument Makanda and really finding ways of working invisibly. So to have that kind of work that is not out there, that is, yes, performance and yes, following this genealogy of artists who were very directly working with their own identities, to have another way of approaching performance being recognized, you know, a way that is less visible, a way that is less spectacular. It was also great because even though the methodologies are around invisibility and working with memory and breath, there's still something quite big that's being touched on. And to see the follow-ups of these must fall and roads must fall and, and those conversations sort of happening right after that mini what to call it like acupuncture <laughs> almost you know you just like touch a small point and then the rest follows and this is not to claim that i was the instigator of fees must fall and roads must fall but i think the way in which the conversations happened at that moment was able to continue beyond just that space because before your award in 2014, you were one of the founders of the Centre for Historical Reenactments, right? And that was at WITS and was together with Gabi Nkobo and with Kemangwa Lahurule. What was that about and how did it influence your understanding of history and the way that you explore and pull apart historical narratives in your work, in your performance work? So I I was part of the collaborative platform called Centre for Historical Reenactment from 2010, and it kind of went through into 2012, which ended with a, a suicide, and I'll explain that maybe in more detail because it's not to romanticize the idea of suicide. But part of what CHR did, I think, in addition to the work that I had already been doing, because I I had always been interested in historical narratives and I had always worked alone. So the idea of appearing in spaces as a solo artist versus a space in which we could collaboratively think and come from very differing backgrounds and 
instigate activities that ranged from readings to exhibitions, performances, screenings, parties. I think it expanded possibilities for me, mainly because of the collaborative nature of the work that we were doing. In terms of what I picked up from CHR and how to continue to develop my thoughts around history was perhaps the notion of research as more than just reading and ways of articulating things that I had been doing before, but, you know, having time to sit within a team of people that then share the same experiences, that share the same or similar thoughts, that moment of kind of collaborative thinking allowed for me to have time to really identify what it is that I'm doing, what it is that I'm not doing. I think it was important in terms of like finding language. I think we all came in with an interest in history and how historical contexts can inform artistic production, but also how artistic production can create ways of telling histories. That kind of common interest being solidified within community really helped a lot. It was a great moment. And then there was that, can we call it notorious, <laughs> intervention at the opening of the Vesta and Inuizo exhibition, The Rise and Fall of Apartheid, where you displayed a banner. Can you tell me about that? I mean, there was this sort of megastar curator basically you know, presenting his vision of South African history. And there was the CHR with their banner, which did seem to raise questions about the hegemony of that view of history. Mm. The banner, they will never kill us all. The banner wasn't intended as like, yes, we're going <laughs> to cause havoc. But we had been working the Elf Kumalo Museum. And I think digging through the archives, we've always also been interested in how to speak to moments in history that also reflect on the present. And how do we present struggle histories without representing the image of the body in struggle? So the banner is extracted from a very specific moment in a protest, and I think it was in Sharpeville, if I'm correct, the Sharpeville massacre where people are holding up this banner saying, you know, they will never kill us all. Fast forward to the exhibition by Enezo, and I think it was co-curated by Rory Vesta. Yeah, it was Rory Vesta, yeah. I think the two of them fell apart, actually, over the curation, but that's maybe another story. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess the banner was to go beyond this re-imaging of apartheid of Black bodies and struggle, but to also kind of speak to what, in fact, was the mood of the time, perhaps, without it being directed towards the curators. I think it was a way to perhaps also bring questions to, and here I speak for myself, I'm not speaking on behalf of 
the entire CHR, but I'm speaking for myself and in my understanding of the selection was also to interrogate in a critical way the framework of the exhibition itself, rise and fall, yet there is a kind of underlying continuation which does not have the institutional power of being called apartheid, but there are killings that are continuing as a result of the hate that has been built and all sorts of killings, including lesbian killings, including xenophobic killings or Afrophobic killings. But obviously using that image to fall in, but also to fall out of this rise and fall. And what was the reaction to your intervention? Was there a reaction at the time? I have no idea. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. Tell me. (laughs) Because also you had, at that same opening, you had Omar Badshaw, you know, the struggle documentary photographer who actively was, you know, shouting down, I believe, in Wesu. You know, from from his position as authentic, <laughs> you know, authentic documentarian. So yeah, it was a fairly, I think, a fairly vibrant opening. I remember. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so don't you mentioned suicide? How did the CHR dissolve? What happened to it? What happened was that it's sort of also accidental because our original thinking around CHR was to reimagine, while looking at historical reenactments, but to reimagine the structure of the Johannesburg Biennale. And we were looking at the Biennale as this sort of uncle that came and left. It happened twice and it sort of disappeared. And we were looking at how to rethink the duration of the Biennale as a two-year program as opposed to a thing that happens every two years, especially something that had happened only twice in Johannesburg. So there was always this notion of looking outside the window from where we were located at August House in Johannesburg. So we would always look out the window and that was kind of our our ritual, looking out the window. And across the window, there was this elephant jumbo, which was on top of a liquor store. So we would then kind of, you know, create these mythologies around the uncle drunk and looking at a story by Bessie Head where, you know, this teacher is drinking at school and she kind of starts hiding and then looks out the class and at a certain point she starts looking inside and then drinking outwards. So we had all these myths along with the window and once CHR had become a sort of public program, perhaps too public for our own liking. We also began to ask ourselves whether the questions that we were asking had no more relevance to us or how we approached them. And if this entity that was mostly on the outside had become a kind of center, which which kind of goes against what it began as. After two years, The decision was then to close the chapter, to metaphorically jump out the window. And at that point, we were also looking at Ned Nakasa's jumping out of the window from New York, whose remains had not been returned to South Africa. So part of the suicide, we went to New York and we hosted an event called the After After Tears, 
which was also followed by the Sinons after tears is a kind of party that happens after funerals in South Africa. And Visinons translates to who sees us, but it's also a name used in Pretoria for the after tears party. So working around all those questions, we then arrived at Nakasa's grave and this sort of institutional suicide in the hope to return. And his remains were returned, thankfully, after that to South Africa. And following that, we've existed as a haunting, as a ghost, as something that is a rumor, a whisper. I was telling you about another haunting that maybe you're not aware of, but at that time that the center existed, I was at a WITS faculty research committee meeting, and somebody brought up the fact that, hey, there's this research center called the Center for Historical Reenactments, and this is like a problem because if you have a center at WITS, it has to be authorized. You know, you have to put in massive pile of documents and justifications and you have to demonstrate that you've got sustainable funding and everything has to get considered. <laughs> and, and these WITS academics were saying, what's the center? Who gave the center permission to exist? <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> that was one of the other reverberations of the center. <laughs> yes, we did have a, an office label that said Center for Historical Reenactments. <laughs> I think someone reported that. That oh, is the center, the School of Art. <laughs> Who gave it permission? <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> so, how has your engagement with history since then developed? I mean, I understand the notion of a minor history versus a major histories has been something you've actively been engaging with to maybe tease apart or to turn upside down. How have you gone about that? I think now it's developed into not only because previously I had been sort of solely focusing on histories of bodies that had been marginalized and kind of finding ways of articulating trauma without re-traumatizing or repeating the image of trauma. I'm now looking at spaces for healing, moments for pause, moments for rest. And I think that's allowed me to really play with ideas around language because language is a tool for power in a way. So thinking about you know, repetition as an accent, breath as a vocabulary, et cetera, et cetera. I've slowed down a little bit. It doesn't mean that the interest has lessened, but I think the approach is one which is more contemplative and less reactive. I'm interested in really carving spaces that may not exist. So determining history as opposed to or in combination with, you know, looking backwards. And is this what has taken you into a much deeper engagement with writing and exploding the notion of the book? Yes, indeed. Yes, I, that's, that's, exactly, <laughs> that's exactly what I'm talking about, actually. I'm really, you know, 
deeply interested in the notion of writing and ways of arriving at writing that are not, I guess, necessarily taught in the way that we are or we have been trained academically. I'm currently writing a history book for those who absolutely need to be remembered. And this history book is, it's really, I mean, it's asking, you know, what it is that we would want to tell of ourselves if we had to just like not protest or not fight back or not react to anything. And it's also really looking back at ways in which information has been passed by multiples of cultures in pre-colonial times without romanticizing the pre-colonial as ideal or perfect, but kind of finding a space in which those modes of knowledge sharing can be activated within a contemporary sense, you know, within a contemporary society, without saying, let's go back to good old virgin, untouched land, but to say we are here and there are these modes of knowledge creation that are quite interesting and that can hold and can we insist on these as equally modes of writing or modes of existing or at least remember them as as ways of existing maybe we should look more specifically at your exhibition which is currently running at the Witz Art Museum and I'm glad to see it's running all the way till 5th of November so there's lots of time for people who hear this podcast and are in Johannesburg to actually go and look at the show because I think it's absolutely fascinating and in the show you present four examples of your video work using yourself as the central formative subject of the videos. And then you present a large number of black canvases that feature writing. But very interestingly, in the exhibition catalogue, just about all of them have rather unusual materials. Not just, I'm looking, for instance, there's graphite, there's oil, pastels, but there's also faithlessness and there's black anger, and there's grief. How did those manifest in those writing paintings of yours, which are probably about easily a third of the exhibition? As part of this exploration about writing, I'm also interested in how to make visible the invisible as a way of telling stories of those who are not necessarily hyper-visible, a lot of the works, and I'll start with the paintings, a lot of them are a collection from things I have heard, songs I have heard, books I've read, stories I've been told that then get rewritten or reconfigured to a point of opacity where the original reference is, is not very obvious. There's one with all the bitter ladies and it continues, continues. It simply began with, you know, song by Beyonce, all the single ladies, all the single ladies. And then it kind of like collected other stories from other people. And so from this collection and this process of rewriting as also, you know, the act of, of writing something over and over again, is in a sense a reinforcement or repetition or like, 
an insistence on what is being written, while at the same time it speaks to an erasure of what was there. And I'm and I'm interested in that in between space where it's not about making things hyper visible, but it's also not about complete erasure. And sitting in between that are also these materials which form an extension of what the work is. The title of the work is what's written on the canvas over and over, upside down, sideways, over a period of time. And through this writing process, there are materials that exist maybe on an energy level and a level that is not visible to the eye. And to include those, I guess, is to also point to modes of art making where philosophy, spirituality, creative practice, healing are not separate, but everything is sort of integrated. These practices that originate in other parts, especially the parts that we come from, it's always this kind of balance between, well, we are here, we are working within a contemporary art context, but there are other influences, there are other possibilities, and how do we speak of writing beyond writing? And what does it mean to make this invisible material suddenly visible just by naming it? I didn't realize that the titles, which to me were incredibly poetic, they were like fragments of larger poems. I didn't realize that the titles were what was written. That was how successful you were in moving beyond any kind of static communicative form of writing. I want to also speak to you about the videos, the one that you have at the very entrance to the exhibition seems to me particularly powerful and challenging and maybe problematic. And I'm talking about the video that's entitled The Swing After After Fragonard. You're referencing very deep art history. There's the original Rococo, The Swing by Fragonard from what, 1760s. They're supposed to sort of anticipate the French Revolution and the destruction of the very flighty aristocrats who were represented by that woman on the swing. But then there was the very conscious reinterpretation of the Fragonard, which you clearly referencing and you engaging with by Yinka Shonibari, which he calls the swing just after Fragonard, and yours becomes the swing after, after Fragonard. And the actual work, and I hope people can see it, and if they can't see the exhibition, it's on the web. There's quite a lot of copies of it on the web. But what's really struck me about it is if Shonibari has done sort of quite dramatic violence to the original Rococo painting, you know, by turning it into an installation, by decapitating the woman on the swing, by making her a black woman, using a mannequin to represent the black woman, by changing her French aristocratic clothing into bright African prints. You seem to have taken it back to Fragonard because in your performance piece, you are wearing 
a very similar outfit to the French aristocratic woman in the Fragonard painting from the 18th century. And what's also astonishing to me is I know that that work was in some ways prompted by the violence towards a young woman who was wearing too short a skirt and the very patriarchal black taxi drivers who hang out in that Mai Mai market and buy food there, buy traditional medicines. You're actually swinging above that crowd <laughs> on a swing in this aristocratic white flowing outfit and you actually scatter money you know it was quite astonishing to me when i first watched that video that you scatter money down to the people in the my my taxi rank markets and they all run they run for the money i mean it, it immediately creates a disturbance and a sort of coordinated movement by everybody who's underneath you and it seemed to me you acting out quite a distance, if not an alienation, between yourself and the kind of working class black people who are there in my, my market and who are also immediately energized by money. <laughs> money is raining down, raining down on them from your swing. So maybe just to talk about extraordinarily complex, layered events that you've captured in the video. So tell me a bit more about it. I'm glad that you captured the gist of it because it's usually a long story to make those links. So yes, the link to Shanivari and then to Fragonard. I think what's missing, just to add to what you already know about the work, it was part of a program and at the time, Maboning had just sort of come out. And in addition to all these reflections about art history, about Rococo, about the French Revolution and, and the distance between this aristocrat and what was actually going on, I was also kind of thinking about what had just started off as Maboning. And I was really interested in this juxtaposition between the reality in my mind versus the reality in Maboning, which is just like separated by a block and how it was safe in one place to be in a miniskirt and not safe in the other space. The idea of this, yeah, very kind of distant, almost alien existence, which was so removed from the reality on the ground was indeed part of what I was playing with. None of the art crowd, quote-unquote, was invited to the performance. And I think the intention was to not make a spectacle of the people there, but to kind of implicate myself as part of this thing that is floating, moving, throwing down, but only the lowest denominator of money, you know, it's 10 rand notes. It's not 50 rands, it's not 100 rands, it's really like tiny amounts. It was interesting also how the work ends because I fall. And the fall is significant, the fall is important. And I think the fall is where the meaning of the work is much more than the setting that was 
say before. And the fall was not planned, just happened. And I think for me, that's the exclamation <laughs> in the work, other than, you know, all the kind of palatable aspects of it that are easy to tell or to explain. What was interesting also was a year later, we went back at CHR to do, to do a documentary on the sewing. And that's what was titled VC Nons, actually, Who Sees Us? Because we were also looking at other falls and the swing, of course, is a fall. I think that documentary was an important process for me concluding the work because I struggled a bit with it. It became like this beautiful piece that everyone loved, but it was so hard to see the layers of problematic that were there, which you, of course, are pointing out. So the documentary revisits the space a year or two later and looks for people who are in the video and you know in their interviews with them about what their experience was in that moment and what did people report as their experience it's really interesting because the one that i remember the most is this woman who says i just saw this one i thought it was a child playing and i asked myself why is she playing so <laughs> so high and so dangerous because the the swing was quite high it was a couple of meters up so people could not catch or touch me uh, from the ground i think it was hanging around six meters above ground just off the bridge so one of the ones that really you know stood out was yeah was the thought of play you know she said ah, i think like she was playing which then led to you know questions around play and what it is to play what i enjoy i guess about performance as a form of creative research is that each work teaches something i, I don't go into a performance with a set idea and you know a complete sort of script with what the outcomes should be of course there's intention of course there's thought behind the work but what I enjoy the most is also when a work leads elsewhere or when a work kind of gives birth to other thoughts and other works and even questioning self-reflection. <laughs> that fall from that distance, which was an accident, it must have been quite a fall. Yes, it was. I, I broke my ankle on both sides. I still have metal plates. Actually, with the with this question of economy and playing this hierarchy, which I entered the work thinking I was a part of, but you know, with the fall, the fact that I actually did not have medical aid, and here I am at a healing center, you know, because my mind is also traditional medicine. The fact that I didn't have any money and I had to then rely on these exact ten rand notes. <laughs> to find my way to a hospital <laughs> you know i think with the, with all of that becoming part of the work so then the work does not just end in the moment of the performance but the questions around economies and hierarchies and yeah who has access to what it became real <laughs> pretty much and pretty quickly yeah absolutely god and how did people react to you falling and breaking your ankles and being helpless from having been above everybody 
and scattering money to actually falling amongst them? How did they react? I fell at the same time as a 10 rand note. So most people, like, I kind of went down and the note was floating sideways. By the time they realized that I was on the ground, a friend of mine who was there, you know, helping with the shooting and also one of the organizers, I was there with a friend and an organizer. They quickly came to sort of carry me off. I think it didn't land that the fall was an accident. And I was also in a state of shock, so I don't recall fully what happened. But what I do see from the videos that I fall at the same time as the 10 Rand note and the crowd is moving away from where I fall. <laughs> what a story, Donna. What a story. And it certainly makes the experience of the video much richer. You know, I had no idea of this as the sort of concluding unintended act ending the performance piece. So that really is remarkable. It's been a great pleasure talking to you, Donna. Here's just hoping we'll find other opportunities to continue a conversation and certainly for me to continue following your work, which I think is really challenging and outside of any of the ordinary categories of what contemporary art in South Africa is about. So thank you very much for it. Thank you, Christo. You've been listening to a dialogue between myself, Christo Doherty, the Head of Artistic Research in the Witt School of Arts, and my guest, Donna Kukama, the South African-born interdisciplinary artist and researcher. This podcast was hosted and produced by myself, with technical production by Elna Schutz. It was funded by the Mellon Foundation as part of their support for the Arts Research Africa project in the Witt School of Arts, University of the Witwatersrand, Johannesburg, South Africa. The music for this podcast was composed and performed by Lee Rosevear and is used under a Creative Commons license.